Hi, my name is Sarah Rachel Brown. I'm a 30-something-year-old woman, and I live in Philadelphia. I'm a contemporary jeweler. And like many others, I am an artist trying to make a living. On this podcast, I am going to broach the subject of value. I'll be talking to studio artists and performers, educators and administrators, and anyone else attempting to combine their creative endeavors with how they get a paycheck. In 2023, I only released one episode of Perceived Value. I have joked that the podcast has been my longest relationship, and... I was kind of a shitty girlfriend this past year. But honestly, I needed to work on myself to show up in this relationship better. So, you know, I've been on a serious glow up, as the kids like to say. This past year, I quit drinking. Now, I haven't really talked about that a whole lot on the internet, certainly not on the podcast. Uh, But I did, and January 2nd marked one whole year. And... The thing is, I didn't realize quitting something could take up so much of my focus and energy because it simply wasn't just the act of not drinking. It was going through alcohol withdrawal, dedicating time to moving my body because I felt like a maniac, spending more time with my friends, making new friends that didn't center around drinking together, and prioritizing my family and definitely prioritizing rest. I read a lot this past year. I learned about personal finance and investing. I spent a lot of time focusing on budgeting and raising my credit score. All of these things that are only going to make me better at the work I do and will lead to possibly sharing on the podcast. Who knows? And something I did in 2023 that felt really good is that I started to dream again. I started to think about my future and really think about my next five-year plan. And if you've been a listener of the podcast, you know, you know, I love a five-year plan. I think they're fantastic. So all of this to say that I am very proud of the year that I have had. It was transformative. But unfortunately, it didn't involve the podcast much because... Well, I did as much as I could. And isn't that all we can do? I did record a few interviews last January. Delightful conversations that, although it is embarrassing to be releasing these interviews a full year later, I decided not to let my ego get in the way of sharing these insightful stories. And I did, I checked in with my guest for today, and she is still okay with me releasing this very old recording. But she did want me to note that Some aspects of our conversation maybe do not reflect the present day. And I get that. A lot can change in a year. I changed a lot in the past year. And I'm just thankful that my guest has been patient and is still allowing me to share this recording. I am currently at the Penland School of Craft in North Carolina, which I have mentioned many, many times on the podcast. It feels like coming home. But this time I'm in a very different capacity. I am the Andrew Glasgow resident, which is a two-week residency designed to give writers, scholars, and storytellers the freedom and support to write their stories, conduct research and interviews on topics 
all designed to advance the field of craft. I am the first podcaster to receive this honor. And a big aspect of my time here is reconnecting with perceived value. Thinking about how the podcast will play a part in my life in 2024. During my very precious time here, I have scheduled a brainstorming session with my mentor. Her name is Sarah Lercher, and we met 13 years ago when I took a beginning medals class in Seattle. I went on to apprentice with her for three years, and she has never, ever stopped mentoring me, and I have never stopped reaching out to her for guidance, hence the brainstorming session. Do you have a mentor? Have you thought about it? You might have one and you just have never put a title to it. I think being a mentor is not really a position you can apply for. And I mean, yeah, you can ask somebody to be your mentor. Uh, A mentee-mentor relationship is often something that can't really be forced. I think it needs to develop naturally. A person's mentor is someone who gives them help and advice over a period of time and especially help and advice related to their job or creative endeavors. Based on my personal experience, today's guest is someone I assume has mentored many individuals. She is responsible for offering me my first paid gig as a podcaster, and she also helped guide me through the contract negotiation process to host the American Craft Podcast series. We do talk about it in the interview, do not worry. She's taught me a lot here and there, and so I'm fairly certain Gwen Rook and Broadsmith might not realize I view her as a mentor, but I absolutely do. I hold her in high regard, and after this episode, I hope many of you will as well. Gwen Rukenbrod Smith specializes in craft community engagement, working at the intersection of craft and entrepreneurship. Originally trained as a hot glass artist, Gwen ran a glass business for seven years before moving solidly into the arts administration side of the craft field. Gwen served as the first fine craft curator for Houston Center for Contemporary Craft the executive director for a handful of organizations, International Society of Glass Bead Makers, Handmade in America, and the Society of North American Goldsmiths, which is how I came to know Gwen. She has worked with both rural and urban communities, teaching her professional development in entrepreneurship workshops across the country over the last 20 years. Gwen believes in helping artists and small business owners expand their markets and create sustainable businesses. She currently serves as a business coach for creative-based businesses, lives in Asheville, North Carolina with her husband and three dogs. So please welcome today's guest, Gwen Rukenbrod-Smith. You know what? I literally put those earrings on for this recording, and I was like, Sarah. (laughs) I actually realized I left the house without earrings, and then when I put this on, I was like, oh, I'm glad I did. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I didn't mean to, but. I always have to take off my earrings, and I was like, Sarah, why did you put on those very big earrings to put headphones over them? That's silly. Um, But yeah, hey, Gwen. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Oh, you got really quiet when I finally started talking. (laughs) Your little wave shrunk. My little wave shrunk. I'll I'll hopefully bring it back. Yeah, that's funny. Um, I'm sitting in Asheville, North Carolina with Gwen Rukenbrod-Smith. And when I was writing the outline for you, I realized after how many years of knowing you, I finally know how to spell your middle name. 
or your yeah my, you mean my second your, last name or your second first, last my name. first last name your first last name <laughs> yeah name. I always went R-U-C-K and I was like R-U-K-E-N B-R-O-D look at me so what's really fascinating side note before we get started talking about other things is yeah. that Andrea my new boss at the America Craft Council asked mm-hmm. me how to actually officially pronounce Brooklyn Broad and that's a good one we had like I had to call my brother. I was like, how do you say it? And I was like, how does my nephew say it? And then I called my cousin. I was like, how do you guys say it? Yeah. We all say it differently. Okay, so how do you say it? So my brother and I say it like rook, like a chess rook, rook and broad. Oh, rook. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But some people say rook and broad. I'm a rook and broad. And some people say rook and broad. Oh, I've never gone there. Yes. So I'm- I don't know if there's a bad way to say it, but at least my brother and I say it the same way. Okay, so Gwen Ruckenbrod Smith? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and can you introduce yourself to listeners in terms of what you do and what you where you live full-time? Absolutely. So I live full-time in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm mm-hmm. lucky and privileged to be in this beautiful space that has not only a beautiful environment, but really celebrates craft and art and creativity. Um, we've been here 12 years, which is now makes us Ash- official Ash villains, and we officially this is our home. Right. Um, I am the currently I'm the senior director of programs and partnerships for the American Craft Council. Okay, and so how long have you had that job? So I actually just started that job. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hired officially August 8th, part time, and then I started full time on October 1st. Oh, and full disclosure, you guys, I reached out to Gwen last year when I was thinking about leaving my job and trying to like manifest some other work. And you're somebody that I, in SNAG, Society of North American Goldsmith, when I first met you, you were the executive director. And what always struck me was just how approachable you were and how even though I felt the first time I met you was such a, like a small little moment, you still remembered who I was and my name. Um, and so, of course, I was like, oh, I'm going to email Gwen and ask her advice because I'm going to pitch myself to the American Craft Council. And it's so funny. You didn't say anything in the email and you're like, yeah, set up a Zoom. And then in, within moments, you're like, so funny thing. I'm working for the American Craft Council, right? <laughs> Yeah, at the time I was doing contract work for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was just funny. Well, congratulations on the new position. Thank you. And listeners, when Gwen walked in my door, the first thing I said, I was like, so how many jobs do you have now? <laughs> <laughs> because the thing I know about Gwen is that you are ambitious and you do a lot. And at times I'm like, how many jobs can you hold at once? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah. I. I am very passionate about the jobs that I do and I love doing what I'm doing. And um, because I don't have children that it causes me to have focus my attention other places, I'm Mm -hmm. able to actually do the jobs that I'm passionate about. And I'm lucky enough to get paid to actually do the things that I love, which is pretty amazing. And not everybody gets that honor and privilege to do that. Yeah. Um, so I thought about speaking with you. I've wanted to interview you for a long time and I was very adamant that I had to be an in-person interview. So thank you for your patience with me. You're welcome. <laughs> like, no, we're not doing a remote recording together. Absolutely not. Um, but as I go back to Philadelphia from my journey in Florida, I'm thinking really hard about what I actually want to do. And my mentor, um, my 
OG mentor, Sarah Lurcher Jewelry, is still mentoring me. And I've been sending her jobs that I'm thinking about applying for. And she's been really good at saying, does that align with what you want and mm-hmm. what your ultimate goals are? So I really wanted to talk to you because you've held so many roles, many that I would aspire to be in in some way. Um, and so to begin our conversation today, can you give kind of like a timeline of all the jobs that you've held? I don't know and- if we have enough time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no. This is going to be the Reader's Digest version because okay. we'll kind of jump back. Let's start by where, what if you went to school and if you have a degree, let's start yeah, there. Sure. And then go to the first job right out of college. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I went to both undergrad and graduate school. I graduated. My undergraduate degree is I have a bachelor's of science in allied medicine. That is funny. I would have never guessed that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And then I went to grad school to get an MBA. Okay. So why the undergrad in the medicine? What is it called it's, again? It's um, allied medicine. What does that mean? It's kind of like... Um, health and community wellness is being proactive it's not fixing when people are sick it's more about kind of implementing programs and helping people um, prevent to get sick and so like a lot of the classes focused on like physical health and like nutrition Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing I actually wanted to be a physical therapist Um, that's really what I thought I was gonna go to school for and then graduate and go to physical therapy school so what in that time made you switch to getting an MBA? Um, so my first job out mm-hmm. in undergrad, and I guess I would say my first job in my path, in my field, right? Um, because I worked in cosmetics at Marshall Fields when I graduated from college. Like that was mm-hmm. really the first full-time job that I had outside of kind of being done with school. Yeah. Um, is I got a job as a chemical dependency counselor to HIV positive and heroin addicts at a methadone maintenance clinic. That's a heavy job. It was a very heavy job. How old were you? Um, 23. Also, real quick, did you have student loan debt when you graduated? I did. Okay, so was this like... Grad school. We got to get a job. We got to get in. Okay. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you could defer it. You know, you can defer your student loan. So right. you can defer it for, I think, six months is what I deferred it before I started paying it back. Okay. Um, but I graduated with about 11000 in debt, which okay. wasn't bad. I went to Ohio State and I lived in Ohio, so state grad school is super cheap right compared to a lot of grad schools so you get a job at this methadone clinic I do and I work with HIV positive heroin addicts I teach them safer sex techniques Mm -hmm. I'm a chemical dependency counselor so I help them with their addictions Um, and yeah it was really it it was I grew up very much in a privileged bubble Mm -hmm. and this was the first time I got experience with homeless people um, people, who, you know, who are coming out of jail, women who are transitioning from jail, trying to get their children back like this. I was exposed to things that in my kind of very privileged bubble of childhood, I was never really exposed to. You would write about in the news, but you know, right. um, I even remember once my mom saying to me when I was home, she's like, I just wish you would get a job with like a, a community of better people. Like she just felt like working with heroin addicts was just not. You know, it was like I was above it or something. Right. Um, I think it did the opposite. It really humbled me and took away the kind of that like bubble of naivete Mm -hmm. and really made me realize how much it was um, my life mission is to help people no matter what job it is that I have and what I do. And um, I was making a difference, but it, it was 
a really hard career at 23. Was that in Ohio? It was. It was in Columbus. How long did you last in that job? I was there about a year and a half. Okay. And then I moved on to another job still in the HIV field at right. the Red Cross. Um, so I ran their um, HIV aid statewide um, education, like training the trainers. Wow. So, yeah, which was really fun. I did that in high school. Did you really? Yeah, because I was part of something called Project Hope. Okay, which yeah. was basically um, low income. My mom was handicapped. So basically, if I donated X amount of hours of service, I was going to have X amount of money guaranteed for college. Um, and, it, and I gravitated and I worked in that. And I remember in high school, that was a thing where I was like an educator on HIV AIDS prevention. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 Um, so you're doing this work and you transfer to a different job. Did you transfer to that job because it was better pay or maybe just a little less intense? It was better pay. I better had been, pay. Um, I had been at the methadone maintenance clinic. It was called comp drug for a year and a half working with, um, like I was grant funded position. Right. And, um, the position at the Red Cross came up and I was like, well, I should apply and see if I can get it. Cause it was about 6,000. So I was making 24 at the methadone clinic oh, wow. thousand and it was 30. And yeah. so I felt like, you know, oh, I, that would be a little nicer to have that. And then I thought the idea of traveling around the state to train was like exotic. Like, oh, I can travel and go to these different towns in Ohio. Little yeah. did I know that like Lima, Ohio, no offense, Lima, not that exotic. <laughs> not, not that exotic. Yeah. Um, can I ask what time, uh, what year was this around? So 94, 95. Okay. So 30,000 and 94, 95 still yeah. doesn't seem like that much, but in Ohio, Ohio, maybe it goes farther. It, it was, I mean, Columbus was an extremely affordable city to live in. Oh, so yeah. I think my rent was 450. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's so, nice. Yeah. Um, so what after that? So that's when I decided to go to grad school. Do you... Okay. And you went to grad school. Did and you feel stuck or did you like really? I wanted to run a social services like there nonprofit. And that's why you went for the MBA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I dream about someday getting my MBA. It seems like. I, I don't, don't know. I think life, you can get, get your MBA life. through life. I mean, experiences. That's, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm doing. But if I had done it again, I think I would have been an MBA all the way. Yeah. 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 Where did you go to get your MBA at? Ohio State. Oh, same place? Same place. Oh. I didn't go very far. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. But that's why for grad school, it's a state school. And so my, you know, that was very minimal compared to what a lot of grads. Right. And did you, were you responsible for all your school costs? I was for grad school. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was just something my parents were clear about is they helped with undergrad, but for anything after that, I would be responsible for. So yeah. I got, you know, student loans and then um, I worked three jobs. <laughs> wow. What did you graduate what, in terms of student loan debt? What was that like? So, um, yeah, about 11000 in student loan debt. Oh, again? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. A different loan. My under, I didn't, yeah, no, it was the same. I did not have any undergrads oh. debt. I only had grad school debt. Okay, okay. Yeah. That's really good. Yes. So you get your MBA. And what, when you are going through this program, et cetera, did anything shift in terms of what you thought you would do with that degree? Well, my mom died. Oh. Yeah. So in the middle yeah. of my second year of grad school, she died unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, How old I, were you? I was 25. Oh, yeah. So I was in 96. That's close to the age my mom died. Yeah. 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 And as you know, it just is a life changer. Right. Um, so I actually dropped out of school. Yeah. And kind of did what um, 
you know, I've always had been a little rebellious and wild, but mm-hmm. because my mom um, was such a big figure and I respected her so much and valued that relationship, I kind of kept a lot of that like down and underneath and inside. Yeah. Um, and so when she died, I kind of went through kind of my own life crisis trying to figure out who I wanted to be and who I could be because mm-hmm. I didn't have kind of this dominant figure of a parent in my life anymore. Um, yeah. And I didn't have to please. I'm a people pleaser. So I wanted to please my mom. So a lot of the time I wouldn't put all black on or paint my nails black because she wanted me in pink and then it would make her happy. Right. So, right. you know, a lot of that, um, I'm the goth kid that wore pink, you know, go figure. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel the same way about like when my grand, when I lived with my grandma, like yeah, she yeah. dictated a lot. Yeah. 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 And while it wasn't necessarily domineering, I had so much love and respect and wanted to please her that, yeah. you know, I did that. So ha- not having her in my life kind of made me had this moment of, wow, I can be, who I want to be, what I feel like I want to be. Um, and at the same time, I also met a group of people that kind of um, showed me um, that, you know, I don't, this, again, this very protective, conservative-ish privilege bubble I grew up in in Cleveland. Yeah. Um, they just showed me there's other ways of them wearing like a button-up polo and khakis, right? They're right. The goth crowd. And that's kind of, I've always been pulled toward that. And so. It's um, also, I mean, a big mindset. It's huge yeah. mindset. I mean, yeah. my first concert in high school was Dead Kennedys, but I had. Oh my God. Really? <laughs> yes, it was. That is so cool. <laughs> I didn't know that about you. You just got so many more points. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, so yeah. So, you know, I had to kind of like do the. The, pa- the like the passive um, punk, you know, goth scene. But once my mom was gone, I kind of went through a period where I met a group of people. Um, I dropped out of school. I bartended. I actually mm-hmm. ma- managed um, a VIP lounge for a nightclub, which I was <laughs> a- actually really fun job. Um, weird side note. Yeah. Lou Ferrigno paid me $500 to bench press me one night at the club. Wait, who is that? He's the Incredible Hulk. <gasps> What? Yes. Is this in Columbus? It's in Columbus because the Arnold Schwarzenegger bodybuilding contest was always oh my in God, Columbus. So, so they funny. came to the nightclub one night. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it just strange. I feel like my life's always been like those weird kind of moments of like who would who, expect that? Yeah. Who yeah, would totally. Ever expect that. Yeah. So when you say you dropped out, did you drop out of grad school for a little while? I after did. She died? Yeah. I, I took that. about eight months off and then. You know, finished up and um, met a guy who was running the glass program at Columbus College of Art and Design. Okay. And he said to me, Gwen, I met an American when I was teaching at Anderson Ranch. He lives in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Mm -hmm. He wants me to build a hot glass shop. Do you want to go with me? You know, you're kind of... you. This was kind of in between while I was still kind of not back in school, floating around. And um, he said, why don't you go with me? You're working at a nightclub, take time off and just come hang out with me. I was doing a lot of um, studying of Buddhism at the time, and that's the main religion of the country of Thailand as well. Yeah. So I said, sure. And my roommate said she'd watch my dogs. And so I went to t- Chiang Mai, Thailand for three months. And that's actually where I learned to blow glass, which wow. is really kind of a crazy story. And this is all in that same period of being dropped out, or is this post-grad school? Post grad school. So you have that degree, burn it in your pocket, and you are just figuring things out. Yeah. 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 
So then you go there, you learn to blow glass with this man. Yes. And you come back. Yes. What did you do when you came back? Um, I got a job as the assistant curator of the National Heise Glass Museum, which was a press glass factory out in Newark, Ohio, which is about 45 minutes east of Columbus. And they um, were open. They operated just for a short period of time. And this museum kind of honored the history of that press glass. And Mm -hmm. it came with a hot chop. So I had to like blow glass and do demonstrations for tours and stuff like that. Okay, hold up a second, because your title has curator in it. You have no experience previously with that. And as somebody who is like saluting LinkedIn and trying to get all this insight about people's experience and how that like relates to the jobs that I'm trying to get, that makes no sense to me. Like, did you have an connection somehow? No, I didn't. You just applied. I did. I think, you know, I've always not let job descriptions and like desired requirements limit yeah. me to putting myself out there and trying to get a job that I, I want so okay but how do you get through the absolute fear that you'll get hired and then you can't rise to what is expected of you oh I always have that fear like I live in that fear oh my god can we just like have a slumber party and like <laughs> me show you all the jobs that I'm yes. looking at and the requirements yes. also I feel like the language in terms of the requirements and how they describe things that they need you to do is very MBA-ish I guess I don't know how it's to describe very corporate. it it's very corporate very and so when you're non-corporate I keep thinking to myself maybe I should just hire somebody to look at job descriptions and then look at me and say, no, no, this is what that actually means. And you can do that. Yes. Yeah. And like, okay, okay, okay. So you hi- you get hired for this security position. <laughs> I do. In a glass company. Okay, go on. Um. So yeah, so that's what I did when I came yeah. back. And then from there, I got a position as the studio director of a public glass access studio in Columbus okay. called Glass Access. So how long did the curator position last? Uh, I was there a little over a year before I applied to the glass access and got oh, the glass access position. So you chose to leave. I did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what would you say your biggest skills from that were? Like, what did you get from that? So I think, you know, the fake it till you make it kind of like mm-hmm. mentality and that, you know, the reaction you had about like, how did you apply to be a curator? With no experience. experience. I have no art degree. I've always been artistic, but never have, you know, I don't have any kind of art history. I never even took an art history class. Right, right, right. Informal academic training. Um, And so, yeah, I just, I, it was glass. I was passionate about, you know, continuing my journey and learning how to blow glass. Right. And I really wanted to, like, you know, be, be around glass and be, be in the creative field. And I I think in Thailand, I realized while working with HIV AIDS and like chemical dependency was really a great thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I think I want to move into the arts. Like I've always been artistic. My parents would not let me go to college for art right. degree. They were one of those. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mom's like, it's just because I don't want you to struggle to make a living. Um, and then, of course, my first job, I'm teaching you know, men how to put condoms on to have safe sex. And she's like, oh my God. That's like, not what, what I meant. I yeah, that's yeah. not what I meant. So, um, yeah. So, you know, um, I think just saying like, you know what, I have faith and belief in myself that if I don't know how to do this, I can learn and teach myself how to do it and gain that skill set. And I think, you know, just deciding that I wanted to move into craft and glass in particular, which is where my yeah. passion was um, at the time that, yeah, 
I was just like, you know what? I just got to put myself out there. And there was plenty of jobs I applied for, for nobody responded. But, right. you know, but the you ones that you one. can, I got. And that okay. helped me get the job at Class Access to run a public, you know, access studio, um, yeah. which was really great because I got for glass time. So I started my glass business and I ran you know, made work and sold it wholesale and retail and did some of the festivals and fairs around the country and worked at that public access studio for a while. And then the struggle for money was real. Then the struggle for money was real. Where was that studio at? Um, So Glass Access is in Columbus, Ohio. Okay, so we're still in Columbus. Still in Columbus. We're still living our life there. Yes. And so you say the struggle was real because the job, I'm sure, gave like it was 24,000. Right. And then on top and of that, you're I'm the studio director. Like I'm an exec- acting as an executive director oh, basically. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, my my glass business maybe 8 grand a year. It you know, netted and stuff like that. So, yeah. 30 still was not just not sustainable. Yeah. How old were you around that time? Do you remember? I do. So I was 28. Okay. Yeah. Late 20s. You're yeah. doing a lot for late 20s. Yeah. 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 So then when did you get burnt out on that? <laughs> Notice I didn't say, so when did you transition out? It's not, it's not. No. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Um, I think so weirdly, I realized that with kind of my schooling with MBA school and really having, um, my dad was an entrepreneur, ran his own business. So I grew up kind of in this entrepreneurial mindset family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I realized that early on that working in the arts, like while I loved the making, right? I by no means was as talented or creative as a lot of other artists. So the reality of where I was gonna take it was kind of like not very far. right? And then I really struggle because I my brain is 50% right and left brain, so I'm equal. Yeah. So the logic kind of reasoning side really gets in the way of the creative side um, and I, have this natural ability and, and kind of knowledge and understanding of like business skills. So I was like, mm-hmm. realized that I could really move into being part of running arts admin, running nonprofits, being part of that and where my skill sets really kind of allow me to be creative, but not in the making sense. Yeah. Um, and I also fell in love with somebody who wanted to dedicate his life to making. And mm-hmm. that's really a hard for two, two people to like sustain a life in making only. Um, so yeah. yeah, so all those things kind of led me to really shift my focus away from my own making and fully into like arts admin jobs. So what was your first big arts admin job? So again, talking my way through a job that I'm really not qualified for. Yeah. This is really what I need. I mean, this is the truth. I was the very first fine craft curator at Houston Center for Contemporary Craft. What? Yes. I had to hold in how loud I wanted to say that. <laughs> and like, no shade to you, but... What? Not shade, Matt. I get it. I no masters of art history, no curator. I mean, I w- worked as a curator. Arts, you know, I worked as a curator at two different museums before. And that sure taught you the... Which taught me some things. And, you know, I understood how to like install shows and, you know, best practices and handling art and that sort of thing. But I just really didn't have the formal training that a traditional curator at any museum would you know be required to have um but yeah I I talked my way through that interview and they were crazy enough to hire me okay so question here because when you think about how many people graduate and want that job and are doing all these things to get it right grad school the right internships etc 
what do you think put you above somebody who had did all those steps that they said you had to go through to get that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think certainly I worked really hard. I studied a lot before I went in. Um, I did a ton of research on the exhibitions that they had in the gallery. And Mm -hmm. um, one of the questions with a board member and the executive director was walk us through the gallery and talk about the work. So like, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, I can do this. Like, cause I'd studied it and I prepared for it. And I thought to myself, like, these are the things you need to do. Um, You know, when I've interviewed for lots of staff for, you know, my career and when a staff member comes in and they really haven't done their research on and and training and understanding of the organization that they're applying for a job for, you can tell. And so I think doing that research and learning as much as you can and really being able to talk, I was able to talk about previous exhibitions that they had um, because they had had an exhibition manager before they decided to move into having a curator. Um, So I was able to have those conversations and Mm -hmm. go through that interview with the knowledge that sometimes maybe people who feel like they've got the formal academic training didn't need to actually do the research to really prepare for that interview or that whatnot. So I think that's probably what put me above. I think they were really fascinated by the way I talked about the work. And I think it's because I don't come from that formal training that my perspective might be a little bit different. Interesting. Yeah. So you get hired there. So is that what gets you out of Ohio finally? It is. It takes me down to Houston. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, when do you get out of Ohio? I mean, I remember and you know, moving to Seattle when I was 23 or 22, I just needed to get out of Iowa, which by the way, people, Iowa, Ohio, not the same places. I'll say it until I die. (laughs) It's not the same. People get so confused. Um, And did your partner go with you? Yes. Well, not at first. So Matt and I had bought um, a 1920s warehouse building that used to be an old ice house in a suburb of Columbus. And we had Mm -hmm. spent the last couple of years, I say we, he really did it. He had spent the last couple of years doing the renovations and the job in Houston I got before we completed those. Okay. So he stayed behind for nine months to finish the renovation so he could get the building on the market. And of course, it's a commercial building that went on the market in 2008, that crash. Oh, so you guys didn't really make a profit. We didn't sell it. We ended up having to do like a long-term lease. Okay. Do you yeah. still own it? No, we don't. Oh. It sold in actually 2016. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you make a profit then? We did. Okay. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Um, how did that job go? Can you can you talk about what was the hardest aspect of it? Because you just signed on for a really big curatorial job. It must have been a hard transition. You know, running with like what I used to say, I could never run with the big girls, like the right. real curators, right? The ones yeah. that are at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston that have like their PhDs and, you know, the ones that are at the Museum of Art and Design. Like I always joked that I couldn't run with the big girls, but I did my best. And I think the hardest part of that job was just educating myself. I just, right. I just read and read and read. And I asked people like, what are the top five craft books you would read? And to understand mm-hmm. kind of the history of craft um, and I had to do it in a very short period of time because when I started three weeks in the Craft in America exhibition that was um, created by Carol Sauvignon and Joe Loria, mm-hmm. and it was a traveling, major traveling exhibition with like over 188 objects oh, gosh. from major master craft masters. I needed to know the history of every single one of those artists. I needed to know their 
background, their, you know, what they made, how they made it, so I could give tours and talk about it. Um, and so I had to install that show in the first three weeks I was on the job. So that was by far that quick, fast, really intense learning experience. Now, this might not be a pretty question to ask, but do you feel that there was any resentment from your peers because of your lack of maybe training that they had gone through? You know, that's another great question. And I'm sure that there probably maybe was. But you didn't feel it. But I didn't feel it. That's good. Yeah. I mean, no one likes to talk about the ugly parts of things, but I couldn't help but probably feel if I had, I remember I did like a, a visit at UGA and yeah. it was talking about, I got invited to tour and talk about maybe going to grad school there. And I went to dinner with the grads. And I remember when somebody asked me where I went to undergrad and I said, I I didn't have a degree. You should have seen the looks on their faces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't, I don't blame them for that either. Right? right. Because we're told we have to do these things to get certain things. Yes. Yeah. There yeah. is this kind of chosen path of how you make your way in the craft field or the art world. And <laughs> Which I haven't done a single step I yet. haven't either. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't so, either. Um, right. And so, yeah. So I think that um, it probably was there and I was probably naive enough for just didn't pay enough attention at the time to see it. Yeah. How long were you in that role? Um, I was there two, a little over two and, two and a half years. Would you say that you enjoyed it? I loved it. You did. I did. Why did you leave? Um, so, a couple. There was a couple reasons. Um, but the main one was my Matt's mom. We had mm-hmm. got we had been, gotten married before I moved to Houston, and Matt's mom got diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and oh, yeah. they live in Hilton Head, South Carolina. So we wanted to get back into the southeast area um, to be closer to help. And so I started looking for jobs kind of in the area of Savannah and Asheville and, yeah. you know, kind of surrounding Raleigh, those kind of areas. Um, Where'd you end up landing? And Asheville. I, um, became, oh, so this is the move to this Asheville. This is the move to Asheville. Yeah, okay. I became, um, they, ha- they talk about like talking your way into an interesting position that you oh really my gosh. qualified for. <laughs> Here we go again. Let's <laughs> this hear is it. This my theme. Um, is that I became the executive director of Handmade in America, which was a community and economic development organization that grew economies through craft in small towns of Western North Carolina. Okay. Yep. Executive it's director. Yeah. So that's the first time you get that that title, yes. right? Okay. Yes. Which is cool. Um, and what was the focal point of your role? Because when I think of director, I think of development, finances, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, and vision yeah. for the future. Yeah. Well, so the role of an executive director is really to oversee the complete operations of a nonprofit mm-hmm. and is the main liaison between the staff and the board. Um, okay. And so uh, at at Handmade, coming in as an executive director, I'd been an executive director before of a tiny nonprofit arts nonprofit that ran art camps in the summertime for kids. Okay. Um, so I had done been that before. when did you do that um that wasn't on the timeline it was not on the timeline because we kind of fast forward <laughs> to houston so we oh, skipped okay. a few years and a few jobs fair enough fair <laughs> enough um but um so yeah so at handmade in america kind of the it was founded by a woman named becky anderson who mm-hmm. actually weirdly lives in the neighborhood next like one street over from me um, in South Asheville right now. And I recently ran into her at a restaurant and we had, it was kind of nice because she's the founded handmaid. Um, she had left and the director that they hired after her just 
was there about 22 months and didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, I was their third director. And, um, you know, I had friends in town that I had talked, reached out to and asked, like, you know, tell me the deal about Handmade. What's going, you know, what kind of organization is it? And they really brought me in to rebuild a business model and fix kind of their financial broken model that wasn't working because they were 98% grant dependent organization. And is that a bad thing? It is a bad thing. That sounds like a bad thing. It is a bad thing because if those grants go away, (laughs) then you you have have only 2% of funding. Right. Okay. I don't even have an MBA and I could see that. (laughs) (laughs) So... Okay, so they bring you in, and then you're pulling on your MBA background pretty hard, I'm sure. I'm intensely, yes. Yeah, and maybe those were muscles you hadn't really stretched a whole lot. It had been a while, definitely. Yeah, was that intimidating for you? I actually, um, when I'm given challenges like that, it's not intimidating. They excite me, and I'm ready to like jump in and figure it out, and I get really kind of um, energized by it. I love that. I need more of that. I'm working on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just think it's, I don't know if you, it can be a muscle that you develop, I think certainly, but I also think it's sometimes just nature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I say that, but then I moved to Florida to become an operations consultant and I never done that before. So maybe I already am doing that. You might be doing it more than you think. I think you've taken a few of those risks. I mean, I'm jumping into the audio journalism community. (laughs) (laughs) so you never know um so you take that job and how did it go your first year um it was you know it was awful actually yeah I mean and it wasn't awful in the sense that it was an awful job it was that that organization was so deep in kind of a really bad cash flow situation that I at the end of the year December 17th, I'll never forget it, 20, mm-hmm. 2011, I had to actually fire all but two staff members. We had nine at the time. Oh. I had to lay them all off because we ran out of money. And I went on Christmas vacation. We had $1,100 in the bank. And I had no idea how we were going to like keep that organization open moving forward. Um, so my Christmas vacation, I spent reading 25 master plans for other organizations kind of in the Western North Carolina area mm-hmm. and identified five that had um, outlined strategies that they weren't doing, but were things that Handmade in America services and programs that we were doing. Right. And I went to them when I came back and I said, if you would fund us, we would do these on behalf of you to help you fulfill your, you know, your goals and your strategies outlined in your strategic plan. I raised $54,000 in a month to do that so that we could pay our bills. I went a month without paying myself a salary. Um, Now, it was pretty intense, like, first year. Yeah. And so you do that, and what happened next? Oh, my gosh. I'm, like, on the edge Um, of my seat. Did you make it? Well, we did make it. I mean, fortunately, Handmade in America closed in 2015, two years after I left. But... um, we did make it. Um, I grew the staff to nine, um, mm-hmm. and we grew to over like a one point four million dollar budget. And we really worked hard to kind of balance. In a nonprofit, ideally, you get a third of your funding from like grants, and a third from fundraising and development, and a third from earned income. Yeah. Um, so that's um, while I had been doing some professional development workshops and traveling around the United States kind of teaching business skill developments to artists. Um, 
for a while, that's that's the organization I was able to launch the first craft entrepreneurship program for Western North Carolina, which was really exciting to do. You make so much more sense now. I mean... (laughs) I mean, I thought I knew you, but do you ever really know somebody? I don't know. That's oh. a very good question. I mean, but yes. I mean, I just feel like after all all the conversations we've had about your professional life, I just didn't know that, and that seems like something so big to overcome. And yes, I'm sure you acquired so many skills through that experience. Yeah, absolutely, I did, and that's where you know I would be doing things like I got certified as a Gallup Strengths coach and Gallup Strengths were invented by a guy named Dr. Clifton mm-hmm. and it's a way to work with a staff um, to understand your top five strengths so you know your strengths you know how you work and you understand how you work so like my number one top strength is achiever after listening to my achiever achiever yeah so like okay I am obviously driven to achieve I you know okay. really driven so it's like part of who I am right um and so you know I went to um Duke's school of management for a nonprofit you know nonprofit pathways to get a certification understand you know how to run nonprofits better so like I really um did a lot of dug in and then it was economic development which was a whole world that I didn't know much about so I applied, again, this crazy thing, thinking like, oh, I'm the new director of Handmade America. I'm going to apply to the statewide, like, rural economic development institute, which was, like, very competitive to get in. And they only let 40 people around the state to get into this program. And it's run by the North Carolina Rural Center. So I applied, and I said I needed a scholarship. And I got in, and I paid $250. And they paid for my hotel in Raleigh every month when we would go, you know, to do this three-day kind of workshop leadership training. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned all about economic development. And so kind of like when I became a curator in craft and I kind of read all about craft, I read a lot of books about economic development. And I think having kind of, you know, the MBA training certainly oh, allowed me to understand the economics of the economic development a lot, right. a lot quicker than maybe most average people who don't have that kind of economic training around economics um, and money. Right. So. so, I mean, and I relate to that because with podcasting, I did podcasting coaching last year. And as I trans- like take on different um, roles, I'm really interested in marketing now. And so I'm like, so when you do these certifications and things, do you find a way to tie it into your hours within your position? Sometimes, yes. Or was it always on the outside? Because I just feel like I'm tired. Yes. And I don't want to work 40 hours a week and then go to school <laughs> or to get a certification yeah. on top of that. I know that yes. sounds... No, I mean, I think it's... For me, 40 hours a week would be leisure. Um, and right. I think... So I've referred earlier to my very privileged bubble of my childhood. Right. Um, I grew up as a competitive gymnast and I was on the national elite team. So I had a very, I was competitive, always very busy. I had, you know, balanced lots of things from school um, to being gymnastics. And then my mother felt it was important that I knew how to play piano and that maybe I played on the field hockey team. So I was more, you know, well-rounded. So that's just kind of been always my demeanor is like 60, 65 hours a week of work is normal for me. And I do like how as you're going through these positions, you're leveraging that position to 
well, I, I don't know if leveraging is the right word, to learn more. Yes. And with those certifications, getting them funded through the organizations that you're learning those skills for to make them better. Yes. That's smart. Yes. I really like that. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And it, I mean, I've certainly invested myself as well. Oh, yeah. So like there's a, there's a balance, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, like using, be working for a nonprofit to get a scholarship, to be part of, um, you know, the rural economic development institute or the ready is what it's called yeah um you know that's that was you know i just got lucky that they you Mm -hmm. know gave that to me um but you have to ask right right you have to ask you have to ask i do ask a lot um how old were you when you were at that um craft in america is that handmade in america handmade in america yeah i was uh 37 hey you're my age okay that feels nice to hear yeah because that is like a very pivotal moment, I feel like, in your career, like a really, a lot of new skill sets taken on. Yes, absolutely. Mm, you never stop learning. Okay, okay. So why do you leave there? Um, I actually got fired. <gasps> oh. Yes. hey I was terminated. You know what? Not that I'm happy anybody gets fired, but like as somebody who's like such an overachiever to know that that happened to you makes me feel like... A little bit better in some way. It's a little humanizing. It's yeah. a little humanizing. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Gwen, but no, it had to I, be said. Why did they fire you? I mean, it's it was a lot of politics and right. kind of some, you know, things going on. So they fired the executive director before me. And that became a real controversy in the community here. And a lot of funders actually withdrew their funding for Handmade. Oh, and so the board fired you. Yeah, it's so the, the board. board fired me and the board fired the director before me mm. as well. Um, and it was more about kind of, um, a, it really started with an employee who wanted to go on vacation and didn't follow the handbook. Right. And I said, you didn't follow the handbook and give me notice. And instead she wrote an eight page letter to the board saying things like I asked her to go, um, like solicit sexual favors for money for handmade in America. I mean, it was really crazy stuff, right. but it was enough that the board wanted to kind of do their due diligence to see what was really going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, it was like a management issue in the sense that kind of they felt that the way I managed the staff um, could have been improved and better um, and right. decided that they wanted to move on and try somebody else, which is, again, I don't think they were wrong in that in some ways. You know, yeah. um, while I had been a director of organizations and nonprofits before, it was small nonprofits that I was the only staff member. So as an executive director, I didn't manage people. Um, And as an artist, you don't really manage people. Right. And while MBA school teaches you some management, it's not what you learn about management in books versus management with actual individuals. Completely different. It's It's just not the same. So I was 37, 38, and I hadn't really managed a staff. And here suddenly I not only had to... A staff of six, I think we started with. Then I had to fire three, you know, three quarters of them. And then I hired more staff. And then I had suddenly had a staff of nine that I was managing. Um, And I think, you know, I certainly was burnt out. I was working 80 plus hours a week trying to save that organization. I had a board that was disengaged and not really active. Yeah. Um, So I think there was so many things that were broken that um, I got burnt out. I became a yeller. I'm not a yeller. And I started yelling at the staff and kind of like that self-reflectiveness looking back. 
I definitely was right. was drowning myself and just kind of trying to do what I could and I was burning out. So they did you a favor in they some ways. They did do me a favor. What the biggest favor they did is um, before they fired me, they put me on like a 90 day personal improvement plan, you know, the PIPs. Oh, I've never heard of this. Oh, gosh, yeah. So a lot of times in organizations, if you've got some kind of performance issues, instead of firing you or terminating you immediately, they might put you on a performance improvement plan and help you get training and education to better those skills or get those skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they connected me. Part of that performance improvement plan was to work with an executive coach here in town. Oh. And that was probably one of the most amazing things that That's it was awesome. a gift. It was actually a huge gift. And then actually terminating me became a bigger gift because it allowed me to um, continue to work with him because they had contract with him. And he called me and he's like, they're not interested in using the rest of this contract and they've already paid it. Would you want it? And so I actually got executive coaching for free. It's like kind of part of my being terminated in a weird sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. And then I continued to work with him and pay him myself because it was just really it was, valuable. Yeah, it was. So through that coaching, where did you land? Like, I'm sure that gave you a lot of clarity on like what you wanted next and kind of reevaluated things. It did. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it was the, where the clarity came from is I've always been pre- passionate about craft. Right. Craft is just kind of a that's a it's a you know, no brainer. I'm, I'm going to, I'm solidly in the craft field. Mm-hmm. Um, what it really helped me understand is kind of what was the skill sets I needed to manage people and what kind of manager I wanted to be, what kind of leader I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and collaborative leader is really important. Um, you know, including community that you're like serving because yeah. you know, the nonprofits are ser- of service to somebody. Right. Um, and then also really understanding kind of a more collaborative management style with kind of staff. Um, so I'm not mm-hmm. a big believer, like the executive director's the boss and everybody else, you know, kind of that top down, you know, right, or, right. Or the chart. hierarchical. Yeah. Kind of I like the circular one where kind of, you know, the executive director and the board are in the middle of the circle. And then as you move out, there's staff and then there's the people you serve, community you serve. And then there's kind of these indirect beneficiaries from what you um, offer. Um because I think that's a little bit more of a collaborative, like inclusive, equitable way to think about, you know, how yeah. things operate, like on an operational level. What kind of jobs were you applying for? Um, so actually, oddly, because I'm always open to things. So mm-hmm. I, I had actually been in conversations before I was terminated at Handmade with another organization called WholesaleCrafts.com at the time. Mm. It is now called Indie Me. Okay. They run an on, online wholesale um, program so that people who own businesses that buy artwork wholesale mm-hmm. and then artists who want to sell wholesale can get connected online. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, it was a really yeah. interesting and fascinating organization. They also used to um, run t- uh, actual trade, like wholesale trade shows. And okay. They were called Acre Shows. And there was oh, one, Acre. Yeah. Acre was part so of wholesalecrafts.com. I got asked to like speak at one of those a few years ago and I got really sick oh, and I no. had to cancel like the night before, which I the never Acre do. Show, cause, yeah, yeah, I got like the flu and I never get the flu. Yeah. Um, yeah. I still feel guilty about that yeah. if you're listening. Um, <laughs> so okay, yeah, cool. so um, actually 
she they had offered me the job like the week after I got fired. Okay, well, that's a nice transition. So that was like easy transition. Yeah. Um, although I only lasted there for three months because it was just not a good fit. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. And so then you're back on the well, well the next job. When I knew, I, I mean, I I so one of the things that I do is I do trust my instinct a lot, and I follow right. my instinct, and kind of almost three weeks into the job at Wholesale Crafts, I just knew it wasn't a good fit and I wasn't yeah. the right. Um, and I've had lots of jobs throughout kind of this whole history where I've been there like three months because I know real quick it's not a good fit and I'm just not going to be passionate and excited about where I'm working or what I'm doing. And that's really important to me that I, do, I had that's part of my, um, you know, livelihood of how I spend my time. And so um, I got a call actually a week after I started the job at wholesalecrafts.com from Dana mm -hmm. Singer, who was the former executive director of Snag. And she said, I just turned in my resignation and I think you should apply. And mm -hmm. I said, oh, I just started a new job. I can't. Like, I can't. That's not appropriate to right. drop, jump to another job Oh my job gosh, so I'm fast, such a rule right? follower like oh, that. I yeah. yeah. And so she's like, all right, well, I tried. And then because I knew... Um, Brigitte Martin and Jim mm -hmm. Beauvais, who were also on the board, and Sue Amendarella, who else, they all, like, throughout a period of time, started reaching out to me and was like, we think you should apply. Okay. So I applied. Like, the de the day of the deadline, like, July 15th, <laughs> 2013, well, I applied. <laughs> so before we jump on the snag journey, um, I have a few questions. So the going back to this you said three weeks into that job your instinct knew now that's something that I'm very fearful of right now where I'm also just afraid to even apply to jobs because I'm afraid to not be happy again like I'm still very I feel like an open wound from my last job I left and how I felt there at the end how do you I guess there's no way to give advice on that but just hearing that you knew three weeks in and you left a job after three months being there, I'm always afraid that that will just like look so bad on my resume or something. Have you ever talked about that in interviews when you move on to somewhere? I mean, I have because of course people look at your yeah, resume and, and they're you, like, why only two and a half years at every job that you've been at? And right. part of that, I get bored very easily, right? So if it's not a job that's super challenging, I'm always looking for the next exciting thing to learn and to be challenged by. Um, so for a while, like a lot of these jobs, I was only at for about two and a half years and that became pretty consistent. Um, I think, you know, Handmade in America was at two and a half years, but I left without my, you know, I was on. pretty committed to that job and pretty passionate about what that organization did. Um, but I can also just can't be miserable in a job. I, I just can't do it. And I've, I need to remember I've that. done weird things. Like I worked at Accenture for three months, which is a, like corporate consulting company, yeah. super corporate. I had to take out my facial piercings, right. To work oh. there. Um, at the time I was shaving my head, I had no hair. So they told me I had to grow my hair out to work there. Really? They yes, can do that? They did. I don't know if it's legal, but they did. And so, hmm. um, but, you know, it, I, at the time I was working at Glass Access and running my glass business. And I thought, oh, I, I want to go to corporate and make more money. So, I, you right. know, I want to make $36,000 instead of twenty-eight. 
<laughs> okay, never mind. Yeah, not that much. Not of a that much. Song. But you know, thinking that there's, you know, I could climb the ladder and make right. more. Right. And as soon as I started again working there, I was miserable. I'm just not fit for a corporate environment. It's just not who I am, yeah. and it doesn't fit with kind of you know the, the more creative rebellious side that doesn't want to follow rules, even though there's a part of me that does want to follow rules. So you'll see that kind of. And yeah. me doing, picking the rules I want to follow and the ones I don't, which I think probably most people do. But um, so, yeah, the ones when I know it's not a good fit, I, I'm, you I don't want to get in yeah. your head. And you I don't bail worry real quick. It. Yeah. I get anxiety about it. Right. What okay. are they going to think? Thank God. For are, you they gonna judge, are they going to judge? Are they going to judge me? Yeah. And I, I would think how... people think it's like a red flag. Like, yeah. oh, look at her resume. She yeah. hasn't stayed there very long. Yeah. Yeah. And and so when it's been asked, I've been honest. I, I think that's a, the thing is I'm always just kind of really open and honest about things. So, you know, when mm-hmm. people like at Handmade in America, they were um, part of our legal agreement was that they put out a press release saying that I resigned, which was really I appreciated that. So that's nice. But I still talk very openly about the fact that actually I was terminated and I was open about that, you know, kind right. of with every boss and every, you know, um, I interviewed for Snag, and one of the questions they asked me in the second interview mm-hmm. is, what was your biggest failure? Oh, I like that question. What is your biggest failure? And Well, my answer at the time yeah. was that I didn't cultivate a close enough relationship with the board at Handmade in America to make it a team effort to move through the, that organization to try to fix it. That's a really nice way to reflect on that. Yeah, and yeah. it was. I, yeah, yeah. I just got into my own little silo mm-hmm. of like, I'm going to get this done. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to do this. And you can't do that alone. You have to do it as a team. You have to do it collaboratively, and you have to do it as a community. And that's probably one of the biggest lessons I learned, both from Handmade in America, my experience there, working with the executive coach, and then continued like leadership you know, training and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I was really open about it. They knew I had been terminated and that, you know, even though mm. press release said I had resigned, you know. They, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. And I, you obviously get the job because I talked about that in the first few minutes of this podcast. Yes, you did. I did get the job. <laughs> um, how long were you at Snag? Six and a half years. Hey, there we go. Yeah, now we're filling out that timestamp. Right? Um, I know a lot of the story because this is where I come into your life and how I know you. So, yes. Can you share about what your experience was working when you went into job snag? Was it similar and handmade in America where it's like, oh, we have a lot to fix here? Or was it like we're going right along and you just got to steer the ship? No, I joined um, the organization in October of 2013. And that's when they they were running out of money and Mm. they were going to close. And so they part of the again the reason why they hired me is for the my business acumen and background and in hopes that I could work with the board and the staff to try to turn it around. Oh wow, mm-hmm. that sounds fun again. Yeah, that's like I get anxiety just thinking about that. Like starting a job and being like, okay, here's a new mess, fix it. Uh, maybe I'm a little masochistic. I don't know, <laughs> but so I like how, a challenge. Yeah. So what were some of the biggest steps you first took in strategy to get it back on track? Um, really. Actually, I remember before I even started, I spent a day calling every single board member. Like I'd make mm-hmm. appointments and I'd spent about two hours talking to every single board member, getting their perspective on what was going on, what was good things about the organization, what things needed to change. I also um, spent a lot of time with spreadsheets, understanding uh. the financials from years and years ago so that I could really understand trends. I could identify areas of growth or improvement or areas that could like, 
be saved because the expenses that could be um, saved and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were the two kind of prime things. And then the third thing is I got out starting to actually talk to a lot of the members to get their perspective on the organization to just kind of gather kind of this kind of more holistic picture of really what was going on and why SNAG was in the position that it was. Um, what kind of progress did you make? We made pretty good progress yeah. um, for a period of time. And, and, you know, it was ups and downs. Right. I think um, the main thing we discovered is we under, we gained a great understanding as a board and a staff of why SNAG had good financial years and bad financial years. And it was really tied directly to conferences because SNAG mm-hmm. depended on a third of their income from conferences. So if we had a conference in a major city where 700 to 1200 people attended, we made enough income to, you know, pay our bills. Fulfill that one third of profit that you had to make. Yeah. I listened. Yeah. The one third. The one third. Oh yeah. And so, um, when we didn't have a, you know, a conference that made money and, uh, those often were conferences in smaller cities that were, um, in the event planning world, they called tier two cities. Mm -hmm. Um, we, you know, so we learned those things and tried to implement those um, ideas as a board um, and as a staff. Grew the staff, of course, which mm-hmm. was really, um, and that when I, you know, the pandemic hit and a variety of us had our positions eliminated in 2020, mm-hmm. um, that was one of the most amazing staffs um, that, you know, was there. And I'm actually yeah. still very good and very close with most of them. Yeah. We yeah, do. Yeah. Monthly or bi-monthly virtual cocktails. Oh, yes. that's amazing. Yeah. And I happen to know those staff members, I think, a good yeah. amount. And uh, yeah, pretty yeah. great. Yeah. So, wow, you're the executive director of SNAG. Um, pandemic hits. I remember because I also had a lot of time and money invested. JV Collective was going to do like a five exhibition yes. event Oh my yeah. God. It was going to be amazing. Yeah, our you conference guys. was going to be May of 2020 in Philadelphia. And it was our 50th anniversary conference. It was going right. to be, yeah, amazing. And so then one third of that projected income just disappeared. Yes. Um, what happened? Because I, I know that you were let go from your position. Can you give some insight as to what transpired? Oh, sure. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, sure. I absolutely can. Um, So when the pandemic hit and we started really looking deeply at the the finances and what what that meant with our Mm -hmm. cash flow. um, So in a nonprofit, you can have a balanced budget that looks like you're you're going to like break even. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have enough cash in the bank account on a monthly basis to pay your bills that come due, you can be a nonprofit that looks on books that you are profitable, but you can have cash flow problems that can eventually cause you to have to close. And both Handmade in America and Snag, that was the situation where it looked like you were breaking even or making a little bit of a profit um, and our profit and loss and kind of our budget. But all in the end, the cash flow, there was just never enough cash to carry through if there was something that didn't work out the way it wanted to. So if you didn't make enough income around a call for entry, mm-hmm. right? Um, that caused a cash flow problem. If we didn't make enough money around or income around a conference, caused a huge cash flow problem. Um, right. So, you know, if we had an extra million dollars sitting in the bank in cash, we could have weathered some of the storms a little bit better than we did. Right. Um, so when the pandemic hit and I took a look at 
uh, everything that was going that money I knew we were going to have to eliminate positions yeah and um through a variety of different conversations and come to some of the actions that the board made and decisions that they made or maybe even not the board but more of the executive committee because mm-hmm. um I think the executive committee really stepped in to kind of make some decisions and not involve the whole board in that decision making um is, and it's, I mean, in, in the bylaws and nonprofit best practices, executive committees do that all the time. So okay. it's not unusual um, to do that, especially if you have to make quick and fast decisions where you can't gather, you know, 18 people on a board together. Oh, yeah. That seems like, it's, ugh, right? Like, it can hurting take a, cats. That can take three weeks to find a date. So that, right. Um, and during the pandemic, things were moving so fast. Right. Um, but basically, you know, the board reacted to the crisis in a different way than I w- wanted to react. I wanted to jump in. I wanted to start pounding on donor doors. Um, I applied for the PPP loan, mm-hmm. and the board chose to not. They 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 didn't take the loan. They turned down the loan, which would have given the staff that was eliminated their positions that were eliminated another eight weeks of pay. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't really want us to ask people for money or to pound on any doors for funding, and I think you know different people react to crises differently right. and some you know pull like let's just be quiet let's pull within let's kind of internally figure out what's going on and others are more external I'm a very external person I was like let's go get the whole community together let's figure out how to fix this and right the board at the time just wasn't interested in that and so um as I was kind of going through and creating like eight different budget scenarios, trying to figure out like, what if we eliminate this staff, this is what it looks like at towards the end of the year, if we eliminate mm-hmm. this staff. And I, it was late at night one night, probably about 1130 at night that I um, was doing this. And the when the PPP loans came out from the um, pandemic, like they were, they kind of asked you to apply through your banking institution. So some banks got their PPP portals open sooner than others, but we all knew there was a limited amount of money available. So that as soon as your bank's portal opened, you mm-hmm. needed to apply. So we were with Wells Fargo. And right. so, no, BB&T, sorry, BB&T. Mm-hmm. And so the BB&T bank portal opened kind of like not until like April 9th at 1130 at night. Um, and it was a Saturday night and I literally would sit on my couch with my laptop and I'd refresh and I'd refresh the BB&T page and refresh and refresh until that portal came up because they did say I was going to be open in the next 24 hours, right? Okay. So I had all the paperwork together, everything lined up and an hour um, after the portal opened, my, our application had been submitted. So, you know, like I had been working really hard to kind of make sure that we got our application and when we could, that we were being competitive, you know, talking to our lawyers and our accountants a lot, trying to figure out what's, you know, what kind of risks we can take, what our bylaws say. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like our lawyer was like, well, our bylaws at the time at SAG said that we could not go into debt. So the main reason why the board decided not to take the PPP loan is they were worried they were violating the bylaws and they were taking too much risk. And, I worked really hard with both the lawyer and the accountant to do a presentation to the board to convince them to take it. Right, because this is a once in a lifetime like situation. Yes. Like no one accounts for a pandemic when you think about bylaws. Correct, Yeah. exactly. Um, So the board, like all but one voted against taking it. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm here kind of a couple days after this had all happened. I'm feeling very deflated. I'm feeling not relevant because things that executive directors do, they were kind of tying my hands and asking me not to do. So I was, and as I was doing a budget scenario, I was like, you know what? I don't think they need an executive director. I think what they need is their program staff because as a membership organization, right. you have to have programs as a reason and a benefit to be a member. Right, right, right. So I came up with some scenarios that eliminated my position. And um, while they didn't take my recommended scenario, which did eliminate my position, but eliminated different positions than what Snag chose to eliminate, Mm -hmm. um, they chose to eliminate my position, which was, you know, I understand it. And I suggested it. And I, you know, kind of, you know, put it out there. And I think at first when I suggested it, the board was shocked. Right. They're very surprised. But um, I feel like you have a responsibility as an executive director for stewarding an organization. So if that means that sometimes you have to make tough recommendations or tough mm-hmm. decisions, that sometimes you have to do what's best for an organization over what's best for you as an individual. Right. And I think that definitely was one of those situations where I think I was like, this is what's the best for Snag. Um, and it was the best for me. I was fairly super frustrated with the board and kind of the yeah. way they chose to handle it. Not like one was right and one was wrong. It just, we were wanted different things. We mm-hmm. wanted to, to handle it differently. Um, and so I was like, I don't know if I want to go through a crisis with the board that doesn't want to handle it in the same way I do. Um, right. And so, yeah. And so they chose to eliminate my position and my position was eliminated at the end of April. But in two true Gwen fashion <laughs> also I just got like weirdly emotional while you're saying I felt like, like I'm listening to like someone talk about their divorce happening or something I don't know I mean in a way Why it was I... a divorce I wasn't yeah. interested in leaving snag I love snag I love the organization some of my best friends still are from that organization yeah. I mean I only I mean, think of you and snag like it's like I can't yeah. separate the two yeah. yeah yeah and I think you know that's what was funny because one of the things Matt my husband said to me once he says he says, I don't think people understand when you take a position, particularly mm-hmm. like you really take on the persona of the organization and become like you meld together and right. become one. So like when Hand, uh, Handmade in America, when I left there, I don't think they understood the ramifications that would happen with funders, with the community, which was very similar to the reaction when they fired the executive director before me. Right. Um, and so, you know, the same thing with Snag. I think I, Snag and myself had really become one and the same. And, yeah. you know, I eat, breathe, and live the job. I love the jewelry field. I mm-hmm. love the metals field. My husband is a full-time jewelry artist. You know, like, it's just <laughs> yeah, like, it was, it was you. yeah, it was my life. Yeah. Um, and it was really, it was really emotional and tough, but it was the right thing, both for snag and myself to 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 make that recommendation um did the board handle my departure communication to the membership the way i wish they did no but i think it was sloppy and not great and i can say that because i was a member at the time you can um (laughs) i can speak for myself yeah and dang you know all i can say about that is that all they did was make the rumor mill just pop off of like everybody was like what happened and if you would have just been a little bit more clear with the yes. members and outgoing and just handled it in a way it just seemed not great there, there's I think there's a way to spin a story and to create good better optics which I right. was open to um but um they you know it wasn't 
my place to tell them what to do. They were, you know, I was leaving, so I let them yeah. kind of handle the communication, um, which unfortunately there really wasn't any communication for probably a month and a half before, after myself and, you know, Kristen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the interns were all terminated. And then they, you know, took Adrian as the editor down to part-time. They didn't communicate that. Right, um, yeah, yeah. And then they promoted John Garbett, who was our advertising person, to direct managing director. Right, yeah. And so none of those announcements were really made public in a timely manner. Yeah. I think it really, um, I, I didn't renew my membership. I think there was something... And I really haven't talked about that. And it's like, there's nothing, no, no shade to you, Snag. But I just didn't want to. I think yeah. it just left something on me about that. I think that. I, if Snag looks at their numbers, I would say that there was probably a big drop in membership. I right. mean, for a variety of reasons. But um, I think, yeah, I think that it left a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths. And yeah. I um, tend to be the kind of person that's kind of like, you know, a board has, they get to make their own decisions on how they want to handle things. Yeah, of course. And so... Um, whether I agreed with it or not, they made the best choices that they, they thought they were making right. at the time. Um, I think Kristen had been was much more verbal about her feelings around how they handled, you know, right. her termination as well, um, eliminating her job and stuff, and not really talking about it. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I in February yeah. stumbled across 2020, February 2020, stumbled yeah. across this job opening. It was 10 hours a week okay, for a consultant to run a craftier commerce program at Mountain Biz Works. And I have um, someday my retirement job mm -hmm. is going to be here in Asheville. I'm going to open a retail store of made and Western North Carolina products. Oh, I can totally see that. So that's kind of like my dream, like retirement, like job, because, yeah. you know, I can't not do something. Yeah. Like your retirement, quote unquote. Yeah. yeah. I get that. Yeah. So, um, I was like, okay, well, if I'm, you know, I'm not with Snag, I really um, decided that I was like, you know, I'm not really interested in being an executive director again right now for a while. I yeah. kind of had been for 10 years an executive director of either Handmade or Snag, and they both were really broken organizations that needed to be rebuilt. And that's a lot of work. And I was pretty burnt crispy. Yeah. Um, so I had applied for the job because um, I was like, I can do this on a Saturday. You know, 10 yeah. hours, no big deal. And reconnect to the artists in Western North Carolina. And that I was like, I can help train them to be ready for my store when I open my store. <laughs> yes, I love like, it. Right? So yeah. they're very intentional, very kind of strategic. Right. So I entered, my second interview with them was on March 11th, 2020. And I think it was declared a pandemic on March 16th of 2020. Dang. So weirdly, as I was going through all this with Snag, April 16th, I get an email from um, their um, uh, entrepreneurship manager offering me the job. Look at you. So I- It's like the universe aligned. It does. And I think, um, you know, the universe aligns. Also, though, I think the universe aligns if you're being very strategic and thoughtful and mindful of kind of how you navigate through the world mm -hmm. um and so you know did 
I, because I knew I had applied, I mean, it was 10 hours a week. It wasn't $30 an hour. It wasn't like it was going to bring You weren't in. doing it for the money. No, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, and I, I knew that, you know, did I recommend that Snag eliminate my position because I felt confident that maybe I might have another job in my back pocket? I don't know. I don't, you know, think I thought about that because I don't right. think I thought that job was going to grow to what it was, became. Right. Um, but yeah, so I started actually working for them on April 16th and- Kind of, you know, started training with them and then ended my position at SNAG on April 30th of 2020 and moved into working originally 10 hours a week with them. And then Mm -hmm. that grew to 20 pretty quickly. And so I was for 20 hours a consultant with them running their craft your commerce program. And then I started pounding the pavement looking for other consulting gigs so that I could kind of manage to cobble it all together to kind of pay the bills. And that's where you've been until you landed the full-time job at ACC. Yeah. Yeah. So 2020, 2021, and a portion of um, 2022, I worked for three different companies. Mm -hmm. Flourish and Thrive Academy, I I functioned as both a coach and um, kind of lead facilitator for one of their intensives, as well as help them develop curriculum for their momentum program that they launched Mm -hmm. um, or kind of relaunched during the pandemic. I also then um, got a contract position with the American Craft Council mm-hmm. launching. Um, basically, what happened is their executive director at the time came to me and said, you know, we have this funding from Wingate that supports emerging artists in the marketplace. And obviously, we're not going to be doing any marketplaces in 2021. So can you help me reimagine how we can use this funding? Um, so I worked with um, some of their program staff and Sarah, the executive director, and we created the Emerging Artist Cohort Program and then took it back to Wingate and asked them if they would fund this instead. And they said yes. So um, right. we got to launch that in, in uh, 2021, which was really mm-hmm. awesome. And then um, we went back to Wingate at the end of 2021 and asked for a three-year grant for um, continuing the program. And so that gave us the largest, that was the largest funding grant that the American Craft Council in its 80 year history received. And that is your position. So, and that's, yeah, my position grew, yeah, from that, yeah. Yeah, so you have like a three year contract with them? Um, so I don't have a contract, like a, like a contract with a date with them right right now. So I was doing contract work for them. And, um, when they hired their new executive director in May, Mm -hmm. Andrea Specht, I, um, met her and we got to talking and kind of started working together. And then it was in July, um, when she asked me why I never worked full time for the American Craft Council with kind of all my experience, she was surprised I hadn't applied for a position, um, and I know a lot of people probably also were really surprised and wondered if I applied for that executive director position, which I did not. I mean, I'm pretty sure I asked you and you were like, no. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I'm pretty sadly still in the camp where I'm not interested in being an executive director. I've actually, during the pandemic, had a couple executive director recruiting firms come to me and say, like, you've been recommended to apply for this executive director position. Would you be interested? Um, and you know, most of them required relocating and Asheville is our home. I mean, that's, it's really is our communities here. Um, you know, my chosen family of friends is here. Um, we love it here. We love our house. We love our neighborhood. It's a nice house guys. They've Mm. put a lot of work into it. My husband put a lot of work into it. Yeah. He's very handy. He's amazing. Shout out to Matt. Shout out to Matt. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah. So did the hustle, the consulting hustle throughout the pandemic and then was able to secure enough funding and um, kind of help Mountain Bizworks feel solid enough in kind of the work I was doing, helping loans. You know, they do. Um, Mountain Bizworks is a community development financial institution or a CDFI. Mm. And um, there's 1,300 of them across the United States. They were formed in the Clinton administration. Oh, I should look for one near me. There is one that pretty much serves any area in the United States, and it's a really great resource for entrepreneurship training and coaching, yeah. as well as money lending, if capital. Okay, I should definitely yeah, reach out to Because them. what happens at traditional banking institutions is they mm -hmm. require you to have generational wealth. You have to have collateral. Oh, you have to right. own something, right, to get yeah, a loan yeah. and that. So um, these CDFIs were formed specifically to offer loans to small businesses that were traditionally underrepresented from, you know, regular banking and financial institutions. Um, so Mount Bizwork serves the 26 counties, western counties of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, we focus most of our lending on under minority unre underrepresented and women-based businesses. Um, and then we also have like a really robust learning section where you can take different classes to help you kind of either advance your business skills or start your business. Um, and then also we have a sector. So we focus on outdoor food and farm and then crafts as sectors to help develop and do economic development work around that, the area. <sighs> I know. I'm exhausted just hearing about it's your quite experience. a journey. Wow. Gwen. 27 years in the craft world. That's crazy. Are you happy? I am really happy. Yes. Do you feel like you're balancing work and life really I'm well right now? Getting, getting there. I'm getting working better. towards it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I told you earlier, I pick a word that kind of guides my work and my mm -hmm. goals and, and the way that kind of I live my life each year. And mm -hmm. so my word this year is mindful. And it's really about being mindful of how I spend my time at work, in work, and then how I spend my time out of work, not working. And um, I actually really excitingly just started a really interesting course. Like it's virtual. Of course she's, she's like, I'm getting another certification. No, What's this? this is all about self-care. It's called Choosing You. Ooh. And um, it's being hosted by Many Moon Thera Therapeutics, which is Maeve Hendricks, who is an amazing yoga teacher here in town. Okay. And also a somatic therapist and play therapist. And so um, you're learning all about the nervous system and how your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous systems work and how particularly high-achieving, people-pleasing perfectionists like myself are constantly right. in this um, fight-or-flight chaos space. I can relate and to so that. And so then at some point, your nerves just kind of, you just feel that burnt crispiness. Which right, right, right. I mentioned it quite a few times yeah. through our, you know, journey here and my profession, professional path. And so um, I asked Matt if I could give it to myself for Christmas. And so we meet on Zoom on Sundays. And so mm -hmm. last Sunday was the first class. And then they oh. released some modules like throughout the week. And um, last week's class, most of it was a somatic meditation which was just kind of really a moment to sit still and kind of be with yourself and your breath and kind of really start to feel kind of the things that your nervous system feels when you just kind of are with yourself and you're still. Um, so I'm really excited to kind of move through. It's a six-week intensive class, and I'm really excited to be part of it to help me kind of rebalance after, um, you know, 
the hustle during the pandemic is exhausting. Right. And yeah. then my transition um, from Mountain BizWorks to American Craft Council, um, you know, I was not actually actively looking for a job. I'm very happy at Mountain BizWorks. Um, yeah. But you know, Andrea came to me and asked me to, you know, develop the job that I wanted at the Craft Council. And then she gave it to me. So it's kind of, you know, it was an amazing opportunity that I just couldn't say no to. Yeah. So, how could you say no to that? Yeah. So actually for two months, I worked 70% at the American Craft Council and full-time at Mount Bisworks. And that was in August and September of this year or okay. this past year. And after that, I was really hit, you know, I kind of hit a wall and I was like, wow, that was just too much. It sounds like too yeah, much. It was too much. It just, I just was, it was a lot. So, um, yeah, so I'm moving into better work-life balance and I'm actively, you know, doing that through this class in particular. Um, Good. So, yeah. I love hearing that. I know. I knew you would. I feel like I've learned so much from you in this. Like, I can't wait to re-listen to this conversation and take more notes because you've given so many wonderful insights, Gwen. Oh, thank thank you. you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. exciting to finally be in front of the microphone. I've I'll admired perceived. perceived value for so long. I tell oh. everybody about it. I recommend it to everyone. Oh. Um, when people ask, like, what are your top five podcasts? You're definitely there. You gave me one of my first like real audio paying jobs. It was for Snag for to record oral histories. Yes. I didn't know what an oral history was until I was writing a grant two months ago, but I know what those words mean now. Yes. And I was doing it and I didn't even know it. Yes, absolutely. So thank you. You're welcome. And then I also, you got to be, uh, launched the first six American and craft podcasts <laughs> yeah. with the American Craft Council yeah. as well. <laughs> you really, yeah, both jobs where I felt completely, uh, not per like I felt so much imposter syndrome in both of those roles and it's funny I didn't even put that together yeah you are the common denominator thank you for believing in me absolutely and you know the imposter syndrome so something that people maybe don't know hmm. but only people who are capable of doing what they're doing feel imposter syndrome really yes it was really fascinating when I learned that I was like wait what what? Yeah, so it's like kind of like one of those emojis where the head's blowing up, right? Because it's like, wait a minute. So because yeah. I feel imposter syndrome, I actually do know what I'm doing. You might have just changed my life by telling me that. You realize that, right? No, but that's really great if that's the case. Yeah, because I mean, I'm trying to be a consultant right now. I'm not trying. I am a, you consultant, are a consultant. And I had to update my LinkedIn to be a business and marketing consultant. I was like, who the hell do I think I am? A business and marketing consultant. You are a built, built business and marketing consultant. You're also a media mogul. Audio journalist. Audio journalist. I know. <laughs> I joined you guys. I joined a group of audio journalists, like their um, mailing list. And I'm going to have like an audio journalist meetup in Philly when I get back. I love it. And I feel like I'm the outsider getting in on the cool kids club. And I can't wait. That's great. That's yeah. really great. I think, you know, um, networking. Right. Meeting people, talking to people, creating authentic relationships with people. Um, I think that really certainly helped open a lot of doors for me um, throughout right. my profession and my career. I mean, if I think it, you've just to the snag story where, you know, because at Handmade in America, I was actively involved in like nationally with craft organizations. Right. And um, at the time, the American Craft Council and Craft House that Brigitte Martin used to run right. were doing these think tanks. I was invited to the think tanks. That's how I met all, you know, all these other people on the snag board. 
And so they, you know, I, I don't think that position would have been given to me if I didn't have that relationship with the, half the board already. And they, you know, believed in me from the work that I did at Handmade America that I could bring some good to, you know, help snag. So it, it I think the authenticness of the relationship development is important. I think the, right. the false networking doesn't, to me, just feel in alignment with my values. So that's not a thing that I recommend. You know, there are people yeah. in the business world that like get into that. Um, but I do think being present, meeting people, attending events and talking to people can really open a lot of doors um, for anybody. And that's really what I love to do anyways. Yes, you're really good at it too. Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, well, we should wrap this up because I could keep talking to you. We went twice as long as my podcast told coach told me I should go. But you know what? When a conversation's good, I don't stop and I don't care. Do you guys care listening? Maybe? I don't know. Um, Gwen. Yes. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Let's it's go. been my pleasure. Let's go eat. Yeah, let's go eat. <laughs> Okay, everyone, this has been another episode of Perceived Value, the podcast broaching the subject of value with artists, executive directors, business moguls, etc. <laughs> Until next time. Perceived Value is a podcast recorded and produced by me, Sarah Rachel Brown. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Perceived Value. Stream us directly from our website at perceivedvaluedpodcast.com or listen on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Just don't forget to rate and review us. Thanks for listening. That was so good. That, that was so good. <laughs>